If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, we're continuing our uh, series through Matthew's gospel. And as you're turning there to chapter 20, something worth noting is that the next chapter is chapter 21, which is the triumphal entry. As Jesus prepares to enter Jerusalem for his final week of his earthly ministry and leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection and then his departure from the disciples, the giving of his Holy Spirit. He's preparing them in part for his departure. So the focus in part of his ministry leading up to chapter 21 has indeed to prepare them, has been to prepare them for the cost they will have to make, uh, the kind of character that they will need to have formed in them to advance this kingdom that indeed he inaugurated and established. So we saw at the end of chapter 19 the story of the rich young ruler And Jesus' words, if you would be my disciple, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and then come follow me. Emphasizing the tremendous cost necessary for being a disciple. That the Lord will not have anyone to have uh, gods other than himself uh, as as their Lord. And then we saw into chapter 20 the story of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. A story emphasizing the the character of gratitude that his people are to have for his grace and calling in their lives to be laborers in his vineyard, in his kingdom. And that thanksgiving is not the result of how much we have, but who it is we serve. Uh, Just as the disciples looked one to another who had more, uh, yet we are to have gratitude for the fact that he has called us to serve him in his kingdom. Well, here in the text before us, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 through 28, Jesus continues to prepare them. He continues to emphasize this theme of the cost and the character uh, that is to define his people. And we'll see that his teaching comes in response to a question, uh, perhaps even a demand, we might say, that is placed upon him. So it's Matthew 20, beginning at verse 20. Listen now to God's word. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, this story uh, reflects a truth about many, many people, and that is people are uh, ambitious 
Uh, we live in an ambitious world. People will put forth tremendous energy to be the best, to be the smartest, to be the greatest, the fastest, the strongest, the richest, or at least to rise above uh, those who are around them. Uh, I can remember as a child flipping through the pages of the Guinness Book of World Records, which I believe is still a bestseller uh, year after year in our country, just curious and really fascinated by learning about who was the greatest, who had run the longest ever distance, uh, who had built the highest tower out of toothpicks, you know, really important things. But man is often ambitious uh, and desires greatness, uh, perhaps in strange ways at times, but he wants to be great. He wants to acquire a status often to make his mark, to leave his legacy, even if it's just within his own family. And we should remember through this story, as Jesus teaches elsewhere, he does not discourage uh, the pursuit of greatness. That, or, or attaining greatness is a negative thing. He defines what greatness means. He speaks about who truly is great. Who is first. Now in Mark's account of this event, it's in Mark chapter 10, Verse 35, and it's not the mother who approaches Jesus and speaks, it's actually the sons of Zebedee themselves, two of the twelve apostles, James and John. In Mark's account, they are the ones who go to Jesus and ask him or demand of him to sit at his right and his left in his kingdom. Uh, most likely, we have uh, a larger interaction that took place between James and John and their mother, along with Jesus, and we have Mark and we have Matthew giving a, a portion of, of each of these uh, conversations or of this conversation. But, but in both cases, it's quite a question, it's quite a demand that is placed upon the Lord Jesus. In Mark's account, the sons approach Jesus and they say, Teacher, we would like you to do for us whatever we ask. In Matthew's account, we read in verse 21, the mother saying, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your uh, right and one at your left, in your kingdom. And we might think to ourselves, well, what, what are they thinking? We would never do that. We would never think that. Where is this coming from? It seems from left field. Why are they asking this? Well, there's context. If you turn back to chapter 19, at the end of the story of the rich young ruler, we heard Jesus make a promise to the disciples themselves. These disciples who had given up career and houses and lands and mother and father, Jesus made a promise in verse 29. He said, in the new world, they would sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jesus had just given the disciples a picture of the future kingdom in its consummated state, in its full state, and their place of privileged positions in that kingdom. They were with Christ. They heard the promise. This was something perhaps in their mind not out of reach. Just as we heard in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, it simply wasn't enough that they were in the vineyard and in the kingdom to work as his servants called they had this one-upmanship mentality, this kind of posturing. And it's something we learn through the Gospels. The challenge the disciples had repeatedly 
of kind of posturing and arguing over who was the greatest or who was greater. So we read back in chapter 18 of Matthew, verse 1, the disciples approach Jesus, they ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom? In Mark chapter 9, verse 34, the disciples are actually arguing, we're told, with one another about who was the greatest. And and I would offer to us that this happens or happened not because of their pursuit for greatness or because they had a high ambition. It happened because of a misdirected ambition or a misunderstanding of what greatness really is. And I think this can happen still today. It can happen in our own lives. It can happen in the church of Jesus Christ. When we think to ourselves, if only I obtain that position, I'll be moving toward greatness. If only I acquire that title, then I will be much greater. If only I graduate from that college, people will know I'm great. I'm someone. If I get that degree, then I will be great. It's simply in the sin nature to try and distinguish ourselves from others, from the rest. Through accomplishments or affluence or position or status. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 131. One of the shortest psalms. It's a psalm of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not, too, are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. What about the mother in the story? It's perhaps easy to criticize her, but there's plenty to commend, in fact. For one, think a moment, she believes in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here she is amidst an unbelieving world all around, and she recognizes who Jesus is. She recognizes his authority and lordship, and her posture communicates it. We're told in verse 20 that she came kneeling before the Lord, a posture usually of of submission and a recognition of his kingship or lordship. And yet, like her two sons, her understanding of greatness is skewed, Uh, her ambition is misdirected. And I think there's at least two very important lessons to learn from the mother's request or demand. One is so insightful, a few commentaries, a few commentators identified this. A person can have a very high view of the Lord Jesus and at the same time have too high a view of themselves. That happens. We see those run right together in people's lives, in our own lives. Here she is. She believes in the kingdom of Christ. She's kneeling before the Lord. And yet at the same time, she is desiring for herself and for her sons this high rank. Great honors, prestige. It's such a wonderful insight into the nature of Christian living and the ongoing work that God has in our lives of sanctifying us. These two things are going on in the Christian life simultaneously, always, to varying degrees. 
recognition of Christ as Lord and my King, and yet at the same time that old nature, that old person wanting to rise up and to sit on his own throne to be ruler of our life. And so true greatness is really desiring more of the honor of Christ, less of of one's own honor. Many of us are familiar with uh, John Newton, uh, the ex-slave trader turned preacher in the 18th century. Well, one of the means that God used to capture Newton's heart, which he records in his own writings and journal, uh, to convict him of sin and bring him to a point ultimately of conversion, was Thomas Akempis' work, The Imitation of Christ, which I have here. And uh, I pulled this off my shelf and I turned to the inside cover and, and ba- I noted here that back in 2000, August of 2000, I was given this book by Shelley. Uh, we had just be- had met each other, began dating, and she wrote a, a note in here, I think you should have this book, Enjoy, in Christ uh, Shelley. And I read through it. I could not put this book down. It is a convicting book. It is a humbling book. Uh, It's possible she thought I needed an extra dose of humility. I'm not sure. Uh, But it is a humbling, humbling book. And one of the lines that Thomas wrote in it are these words. The devil is continually tempting thee to seek high things, to go after honors. And Thomas has a lot of that kind of humbling language uh, throughout that work. The devil is continually tempting us to seek high things, to go after honors. And so the Lord really is on a daily basis calling us down from our own honors, pursuing our own uh, prestige, uh, because he knows that what we need most is for him to be on the throne of our lives, on the throne of our hearts. That's what's best for us. That's the place of peace and rest for him to be Lord. Uh, The second lesson from the mother's question is, I think, that what we often want or what we sometimes want for ourselves and for our children is not always what the Lord wants. What mother or father doesn't want their child to have some kind of outward success, to fulfill their dreams, to pursue their own desires? Uh, No parent wants their child to struggle in a sport or in school or in a relationship. And yet there's such a practical and relevant point here. For those of us with children, whether it's adult children, certainly those with young children in our home right now, like myself, what kind of greatness, what kind of success are we defining and teaching our children? What are we demonstrating to them is greatness, is success in this world. Are we teaching them that the way of the cross, cross cross-bearing, is the way of life? That self-denial is really the life of true freedom? That humility is a central mark of greatness in our Lord's eyes? That it's better to give than to receive? The issue for James and John and their mother is really they have an overestimated, uh, they've kind of overestimated their own importance. And they've really underestimated the costs of following Christ. Overestimated their own value or uh, their own place of honor and underestimated the cost of following Jesus. The Lord doesn't respond to them with a rebuke. He doesn't chide them. 
he really elevates the bar. If we want to talk about greatness or position, Jesus elevates the bar by defining greatness as the path of following after him. He is pointing them to the cross. He is defining or redefining what greatness really means through cross-bearing. Jesus had just spoken about his own necessary suffering and death in the previous section. I did not read that, but it's in verses 17 through 19. It was the third of four predictions that Jesus makes through Matthew's gospel that he must suffer. The Son of Man will be delivered over. They will condemn him to death, mock, flog, and crucify him, he says. And so here you have James and John, their mother, Their minds are set upon places, uh, positions of honor, and Jesus is bringing them down into this valley of humiliation and suffering. And so he asks them, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they say to him, we are able. He said, you will drink my cup. Now what is this cup that Jesus is referring to? Now, throughout the scriptures, the cup often will, remain, uh, will mean the, the, the Lord's wrath being poured out, the cup of God's wrath. We read in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17, Wake yourself, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Later in the Garden of Gethsemane, chapter 26, verse 39 of Matthew, we're going to read Jesus' words in prayer, Father, let this cup Pass from me, yet your will be done. We have the cup as the wrath of God, which the Lord Jesus drank as he bore our sin and guilt and indeed the Father's wrath on the cross. He drank from that cup that we would know peace with God. But but the cup can mean something else, that metaphor, it can refer to really a shared destiny or an allotted share of joy or suffering. Uh, This portion of uh, our portion with Christ. Uh, We think about joining in the Lord's Supper, something that we look forward to in the future when we will be able to participate and take of the bread and take of the cup. And what is Jesus' words? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And what do we do? We drink from this cup. We share in this cup. It's the redemption that Christ has accomplished. It's a cup of remembrance and of celebration and of fellowship with him. Psalm 16, verse 5, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. We cannot drink the cup of God's wrath. It would consume us, but we share in the cup of blessing and joy and indeed of suffering in the steps of our Lord. So Jesus says in verse 23, you will drink my cup. And and indeed, James and John would. James would become the first martyr among the 12 apostles, recorded in Acts chapter 12 at the hands of King Herod. John will be exiled on the island of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1. But the wonderful thing about drinking from this cup, this cup of humility and suffering, is that it is the cup of the Lord. We share in that. 
and following him in his steps, walking in his path. So that greatness is not obtained by climbing up a ladder of position or prestige, but by going down into the valley of humility. Not by asserting one's own will, but having the person and character of Christ formed in us. And that's a great work that he is constantly pursuing in our lives. And there's an important and relevant point about greatness here. Great people, great ones are often forgotten. They're not always the, one, the ones who hold particular positions. Great ones are often forgotten. I remember just uh, three years ago while our family was in Scotland uh, celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And, and one of the sites I wanted to visit was Greyfriars Churchyard. It's in the old town, the old city of Edinburgh. And, uh, and in this church and around this church is a cemetery Greyfriars Churchyard. And in this cemetery in 1638, a couple thousand Christians gathered together to sign a covenant, the National Covenant. They were signing a commitment to defend their freedom to worship as they understood it, indeed as Presbyterians, but also to defend the crown rights of Jesus Christ. For them, no earthly monarch had divine right over the church. There is one king over the church, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And for many of them, what they signed and that commitment they made would cost much. And you can make your way back to the corner of that cemetery, and there is a place gated called the Covenanter Prison. These Covenanters, these Presbyterians... And there on a plaque are these words. Behind these gates lies part of the Greyfriars churchyard, used as a prison for more than 1,000 supporters of the National Covenant. For more than four months, these men were held here without shelter and fed four ounces of bread a day. Some of the prisoners died here. Some were tried and executed and the remaining 257 sentenced to transportation overseas to the American colonies, where nearly all drowned when the ship they were on wrecked off the Orkney Islands. Uh, This is just one piece of Presbyterian history. It's an even smaller piece of church history, and it is just a dot on the map for history in general. These are men, these are people by and large, forgotten. Probably few in our world would would know about these covenanters. And yet these individuals, real people, walked the path of the cross that the Lord had ordained for them. To proclaim him, to defend his kingship, the crown rights of Christ. Not all are called to martyrdom, but we are all called to bearing the cross to drink the cup of humility and lowliness, to walk the path of suffering that God has for us in our conformity to the Lord Jesus. And Jesus then goes on to explain what that means in verse 25 for the disciples. Here he is preparing them for the extension of his kingdom and his departure. And so he says, calling the 12 together, 
he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. We see just how countercultural Jesus' words and teaching really are. Uh, Gentile, uh, that is, pagan greatness is defined by ruling over. But true greatness, defined by Christ here, is humble servanthood. It's not lording over, it's humble servanthood. The great are those who are servants. Jesus doesn't uh, deny the significance of positions, offices, rulers. Whether that's the position of a parent, a mother, a father, a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a manager, a magistrate. But here we see something so significant that greatness is not the result of the position that is held. It's a result of this kind of character being worked in and through that person. How often it is that greatness is viewed by an outward kind of measurement. Perhaps how big a church is, or what position a person has climbed to obtain, how many degrees a person might have. But but true greatness here in Christ, in his mind, is summed up, I think, very well in Philippians chapter 2. Where Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. That's what our Lord Jesus did. He had this other focus that that defines so much of his life. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Jesus Christ. Uh, This is the path that the Lord walked. And yet, it's the path that he alone could accomplish, that he could fulfill. Because this was the path that led him ultimately to the cross for us. And we read in verse 28, for even the Son of Man, he is not simply teaching this, this is what he demonstrated in his life, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He he went low to make us great, in a sense. And we're called to receive his ministry in our lives. But then we're also called to follow in the pattern that he set before us. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the redemption that we have through the suffering servant, the Son of Man, who gave his life as a ransom, that cost to purchase our freedom. For we were captive, we were captive to sin, our destiny, uh, death and damnation. We thank you for what you have provided in your Son to be a substitute on the cross for us. Lord, we pray that we might see the worth of our salvation, the joy of our salvation. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would continue to work in us that humility that we all need. And indeed, the church 
and those around us need as we give ourselves, Lord, for your kingdom purposes. Continue, Lord, to be at work, sanctifying your church in this season. Be our chief shepherd and and be the good shepherd that you are who has given his life for us. For, Lord, we are in need of you. And, Lord, we pray all these things uh, with thanks in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.